Hi, I'm Niall Brown, and welcome to this episode of the Movies in Focus podcast. Writer and journalist Abby Bernstein is the author behind many great film and television books, such as The Art of Mad Max Fury Road, Godzilla King of the Monsters, and The Cabin in the Woods Official Visual Companion. A Los Angeles resident, she writes for such titles as Assignment X, Fangoria, and Buzzy Mag. Her latest work is Master of Horror, the official biography of Mick Yaris a book which looks at the life and career of the iconic horror writer-director, Mick Yaris. It's a brilliant book which gives you everything you want from a biography of a great filmmaker. Abby joined the Movies in Focus podcast to discuss the publication of the book and to talk about her long and varied career on the entertainment beat. I hope you enjoy what we had to discuss. Good morning. How are you? I'm all good. Thank you for joining me at this uh, crazy time for you. What, What time is it with you? It's 2 a.m. here. 2 a.m. Well, I'll make sure I don't keep you up too late. So. It's, it's okay. I'm, uh, I'm up late often. Now, you, are you from Derry or in Derry or you're from Derry and in Derry? Um, I'm from Derry um, and I'm in Armagh at the minute. So I'm kind of halfway between Belfast and, and Dublin and Ireland. It's lovely speaking with you and a fantastic book that you've you've done Abby oh well thank you very much I'm really glad you enjoyed it yeah I mean Mick is such an interesting character I mean I I could have spoken to him all day and and still not scratched the surface um how did you go about with the idea of the book well in I think 2016 I at least this is this is what I remember. I saw a biography of somebody else in the film business, and I thought, this person has a bio. They've made like three things. Why do they have a bio? Mick should have a bio. And so I went to Mick and said, you know, do you how would you feel about me doing a biography? And Mick, I'm sure feeling certain that I would never find a publisher said, yes, you know, if you want to do it, if you can find a publisher, yes. Imagine his surprise when two years later I found a publisher. <laughs> and one of the great things about the book, which you, you sort of say in the opening, is that you, you almost want Mick to tell it in his own words, so you don't really editorialize or, or deconstruct his words. What made you decide to do that? Um, I don't feel qualified to, um, I mean, if, if I'm writing fiction, of course, I feel, you know, you can say this, that, or the other, but I feel like a pretentious idiot going, oh, but what he really means, or perhaps, you know, but does he really understand, and is the subtext really this, and is he being... You know, I I wouldn't even want to do that with somebody I don't know, and I'd be mortified doing it with a friend. I mean, obviously, there's a there's a great cast of characters that that Mick has met throughout his career. How did you reach out to them? And is there anyone that you you didn't get, or just the scheduling issues or things like that? Um. Well, obviously, uh, Stephen King didn't work out. Um. Most of the people were people that I said to Mick, who do you think I should talk to? And he said, well, you know, here's a list. Um, Some of the people, John Landis, interestingly, while I know him better through Mick, 
I know separately from Nick. Um, so, uh, and if you've read the book, you know, you know how how uh, influential John was on Mick's early career. Um, while I was interviewing Mick, uh, John Landis called up because they had a lunch date, and he was calling to say, "Could we make it earlier?" And Mick's like, "Oh, Abby's here, and she's interviewing me for this book." And so John said, "Oh, well, have her come to lunch." So the three of us went to lunch together, and I explained about the book and. John was extremely excited and I said, can I interview you? And he was like, oh, of course. And uh, and then Bruce Stern recognized John Landis and he came over to say hi to John Landis. I was like, am I hallucinating? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a great it, lunch. Yeah, yeah, it was it was, uh, uh, you know, it was sort of like, OK, I believed it until now, but now there's just too many. <laughs> there's there's too much going on. Um, so uh, Bill Malone, I am friends with through Mick, but Bill Malone is a friend. Uh, Cynthia, I am good friends with. Um, and um, there are a few other people I have social, John Billingsley actually I'm friends with and I'm very good friends with his wife. And that was a case of, oh, wait a minute, you worked with Mick, let me interview you. And <laughs> There were a couple of people where I was actually interviewing them about something else altogether, and it was like, well, while I've got you, I'm doing this book, and are you okay to talk about Mick? But most of them were people where I said, you know, who would you like me to talk to? And he said, here you go. And one of the things, like I said, he's done everything. How did you decide to break it up into the things that he had done throughout his career? And obviously spend time on certain aspects and, and try to move the narrative along through others because it, it's been a 40 year 50 year career of just great stuff how did you edit that down and think i'm only going to deal with these certain aspects um well basically it was like as much as he wanted to talk about so uh and i was very fortunate that uh the publisher i you know, I suppose if it had gotten completely unwieldy, he would have said something, but he wasn't trying to keep it to a particular word count. So uh, it was pretty much what Mick had to say when I asked the questions. Uh, if there were things that we didn't go into, that was because it didn't occur to me to ask the question. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the, the, the parts of the book I really loved was the whole... Uh, masters of horror you went into so much detail in that it would, you could almost have had a book in itself on that that was mick was when he saw that he's like my god but some of my novellas are shorter <laughs> than this um yeah that was uh and uh, we actually did four sessions on that uh i just went with each episode and i looked on imdb to make sure that I had who had done it and I rewatched all of the episodes. Um, except, I, well, I didn't rewatch Imprint, um, but I rewatched all of the other episodes to have some idea of what I was talking about. And obviously, I talked to some other people who were involved with Masters of Horror besides Mick and just went through the episodes and said, Well, what did you do about 
this and why did you do that? And, uh, you know, and in a lot of cases, the answer was, well, that was what the director wanted. <laughs> you know, fine. Um, so uh, that seems to be probably the thing he seems most proud of through the he's done a lot of great things but it, that seems to be where i think because of the people he brought together is that something that you thought as well that comes across um i know he's very proud of it and because it's such a sense of community i think i think that's the i mean mick really likes being there for his friends and he got there he got to be there for more of his friends than with any other thing he's done. So not to put words in his mouth, but I imagine that might be a part of what he likes about that. And what's it like having a friend and then deciding you're going to write a book about them? How does, does your relationship slightly shift at that point, thinking that you're going to be their interrogator as such? Um, I don't think so, because I've, I've interviewed Mick a number of times. Um, he actually, um, back when he was doing The Stand, um, Bill Warren was supposed to interview him for Fangoria, but Bill had a death in the family and couldn't do it, so Mick suggested to Fango that I do it, and I'd, I'd written for Fango previously, so they knew who I was. Um, so over time, I've interviewed Mick a number of times, so it's just, I, you know, once in a while, he had, I mean, when you're interviewing somebody you know, and this isn't just Mick, there will be a moment where they're like, oh, this is off the record, or turn the tape recorder off, or whatever, um, but you know what you're doing and they know what you're doing so it's it's not weird and sort of turning the tables on you for a moment about your career you've obviously been doing this a long time and journalism journalism has changed so much over the last especially sort of 25 years what's your thoughts on the the, the shift in all that um well i know uh, It's kind of funny because um, you may know I do a lot of making of books, yes. um, which to me is still journalism because you're still, you know, you're still interviewing people. Um, in fact, that was sort of how I approached the Mick book. It was just instead of the making of a single film, it was the making of a bunch of things that had a person in common. Um, because I'm in this kind of, I mean, I'm not doing, uh, news journalism, I'm doing entertainment journalism, and I've always done it for publications that are interested in, the professional side of things and not gossip things. It hasn't changed that much in terms of what I'm doing. Right. I'm physically what you're doing is different. I mean, the, you know, the equipment is 
you know, thank God we have computers and not typewriters with those little balls that, <laughs> and the, the backspace ribbon where you had to, you know, backspace and white out and, uh, you know, rewriting was uh, a bit of a challenge. Um, so, uh, and the kind of typesetting I did no longer exists. Um, I wasn't working with hot type, but back then, uh, nobody had personal computers so they would just type up whatever they had on a typewriter and you have this giant machine that was like the size of a the size of an armchair that you were retyping their copy into right <laughs> sounds fun yes uh anyway uh people now type their own stuff and it may you know, it may require proofreading or editing or whatever, but you don't have to actually type it for them. Um, and also when you're doing your own writing, uh, you know, you obviously have to do your own transcription. Well, no, you don't, maybe that's not obvious. I do my own transcription because for one thing, paying a person, they'd make more doing the transcribing than I'm doing writing, whatever it is. So. <laughs> um yeah, but tra transcribing is always fun it's, it's one of those uh chores that you just you have to kind of get your head down and just decide to do it don't you yeah the amount of transcription for mixed book was uh quite a lot and it was nothing compared to the index <laughs> <laughs> i did the index which is maybe the by the end of it, I felt like I was in deep space. <laughs> um, going back to um, your making of books, which it's something that I find fascinating for years, and obviously I buy them and things. How, how do you talk me through your writing of a making of book? Okay, well, that's different than the Mick book and that I don't initiate those. In fact, I had to be, because I'd never initiated a book before, I... Uh, got some uh, suggestions from other people about, you know, how you how you do a book proposal. Um, I had been working for Titan Publishing as their LA liaison. And then uh, due to changes in technology, they didn't need an LA liaison anymore. But I'd done a lot of writing for them. So they would come to me and say, hey, we are doing a book about this. Do you want to write it? And I, you know, if I say yes, uh, I then break it down into sections with the editor. We, we talk about, you know, okay, how do we want to structure this? And then the production company gives us um, contact information or sets up interviews with the people they want us to talk to. I talk to the people and then, um, I found that as I'm transcribing, it's like, okay, well, these quotes pertain to this section. So copy and paste these quotes here. These quotes pertain to that section, copy and paste those quotes there. Then when you've transcribed everybody, you go and look at the sections and go, all right, how do I wanna structure this within the section so that it's like, well, this person said at the very beginning we did this, 
And then this other person said, well, and then after they did this, I did that, and so on. Right. So it's how, how long or far along is it the film in production? Are you doing it retrospectively or is it ongoing? So I'm doing it retrospectively because nobody has time to talk to you during production. <laughs> um, and also, uh, usually, I the only exception with that would be uh, making of books for TV uh, series where they're sort of constantly in production or pre-production on the next season. Right, because um, they're constantly working and you've just got to fit it in amongst their, their day-to-day. Um, well, usually uh, they try to, even those they try to do in like the, um, the hiatus between seasons. And which do you prefer? Do you prefer sort of regular film journalism or the, the making of aspect or, or even mixed book? What's your, what's your favorite aspect to that? Um, I love talking to people about their work. So really um, whatever, um, I think I feel a little more personal connection to the mixed book just because I got it off the ground. The other books, I mean, I hope they've turned out well. And so far as I know, the, everybody's happy with them, but they would get written whether I wrote them or not. Um, the Mick book, I don't know if it would have happened if I hadn't done it. And now that you've, you've done the Mick book, is, have you got other people that you now want to maybe do a biography of? Well, I don't, I mean, there, Mick was a fairly unique situation in that he's done so much and I've known him so long and there is a level of trust there um, that he, did, he didn't think I had some kind of strange ulterior motive and he wasn't worried that I was going to embarrass him. And so, well, and also um, I would send him everything before I sent it into the editor to say, is this okay? Is this correct? And, you know, sometimes he'd say, well, actually you've got the date wrong or, you know, it's this person. There was one thing where uh, we we both had to investigate the name of an editor because um, <laughs> I was like, well, it looks like it's this person. Like, no, I mean, I mean, this is somebody long, long ago, not not uh, not Pat McMahon, who we both know who Pat McMahon is. Um, but um, I don't know anybody, you know personally who it would make sense for me to do that with and it must feel good for you now that the reviews are, are are coming out to see that it's so well received what what how does that feel knowing that you it was your idea to do it and then that you made it made it all happen uh it's very weird i'm used to not i mean if you've seen the making of books most of them have such beautiful uh design that I I think with most of them I could write banana 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 and people would still go oh what a gorgeous book um so this is a little strange 
I'm, I'm a big fan of your uh, Mad Max book, by the way, the, the making of Fury Road. Oh, thank you. I, I thought that came out very well, but that's a great example of, I mean, you've got the storyboards and you've got the artwork and you get, you know, and hopefully the, the text is enjoyable and informative, but I think people would be perfectly happy flipping, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I wouldn't um, say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that one came out very well, and it was also very nice because... I mean, you could tell it was a good movie. When we were working on it, nobody knew it was going to be, you know, Oscar nominated best picture and Oscar winner for four different categories. So uh, that was, you know, it was very uh, gratifying to be affiliated with that film in some small way. That's it. And it sort of was a very massive cultural sort of moment cinematically, which we haven't really had in a long, long time. Yeah, it really. It, it, it really struck a nerve. And I think part of that may have just been that it was practical and you could see that it was practical. Yeah. No, and of course, I mean, because there's so much CGI, just your brain sort of shuts down whilst you're watching it. But there, that there was such a visceral feeling to, to that movie. It was just stunning. Yeah, I mean, the, the stunt where they're on the pole. The, yes. Um, that was just breathtaking. Um, I was doing a little bit of homework on you, and I see you've done a lot of stuff on Robin of Sherwood. Yes. <laughs> how, how did all that come? Because, I mean, I, I grew up watching that, you know, and it was just amazing. Um. Well, Robin of Sherwood um, started because I was just a huge fan of the show. And I was like, well, can I, I was going around to the publications I work for saying, can I interview this person? Can I interview that person? Um, and then uh, if you, have you seen the DVDs and the documentary and I, I own the DVDs and the documentary. So. <laughs> okay, so you've uh, they uh, the uh, DVD company network video approached me and said, um, we'd like you to interview Michael Prade. And I said, well, I can also get and and they had uh, Richard Carpenter and by the at this point I was good friends with Richard Carpenter and Anthony Horowitz and Michael Prade and Mark Ryan. Um, I'm still good friends with the um, Richard Carpenter, very sadly passed away in 2012, but I'm still good friends with the other three. Um, and I said, well, I can get you uh, these people. And I called Ray Winston and said, you know, we're doing this and would you do this? And he was like, oh, sure. And the one person we couldn't find was Peter Llewellyn Williams, but Ray found him for us. So, <laughs> um, and they they got Clanad and Esther Charcom uh, without me. And uh, they had Paul Knight lined, Paul Knight and Richard Carpenter lined up already. But um, and Mark Ryan was very helpful in getting uh, people that I didn't know how to contact. He was like, oh, that's fine. I'll, 
<laughs> and he did. Um, and uh, I got um, uh, Robert Chapin, who is a sword guy, who is sort of affiliated with Highlander, who is a friend, to uh, do a sword fight with Mark Ryan and in my friend's backyard so uh, <laughs> Mark could demonstrate the sword techniques. No, I mean, that's such a fantastic show. And the, the, the documentaries and interviews on that set are amazing. So it's, it's actually, a, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw it uh, when I was doing my homework. And also, I used to live in Nottingham. And uh, I used to work in the Sheriff oh. Hall, which is the Sheriff of Nottingham's old home. And there's the Sheriff Dungeon, which legend oh has God. Robin Hood ended up in. So it's a, it's a small world. <laughs> it is. Um, Mick, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't figure out any like, well, actually, no, that's not. Matt Frewer was in an episode of Robin of Sherwood. Was he? Yes. He was. He was in the betrayal episode, you know, the one with the fake, the fake outlaws. Yes, yes. He was the head of the fake outlaws. Because obviously Matt Frewer, he spent a lot of time in England, sort of Max Headroom and all that sort of thing. Yes. And his wife is English. And she was in another episode of Robin of Sherwood playing the sheriff's sister-in-law. Um, a strange six degrees of separation. Yes. So um, I am I I am aware of that. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, I was aware of that when I was talking to Matt Frewer for Mick's book, but there really sort of wasn't a relevant way of bringing up Robin <laughs> of Sherwood in the Mick book. That'll be for the sequel. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of like, yeah, for, for things that, uh, you know, weird, weird overlaps in the cosmos. Um, I'll, I'll sort of begin to wrap things up because I know it's very late for you. Just finally, what, what are you working on at the minute? Apart from um, I'm, for this? I'm, I'm working on another book for the company that, uh, for Titan Publishing that I do the making of books for, which is under a non-disclosure agreement, so I don't okay. think I can talk about it yet. Um, and I did the book on the mini-series Midnight Mass for them, which is coming out in October. So it's a, a relatively busy time for you. You've got all these different projects at different stages. Yeah, and I'm, you know, still like like everybody else in Los Angeles working on my novel. <laughs> <laughs> And how, is there any potential date for that? Or are you getting close to it or finishing? Well, I've done, I've, I've done the first draft and I'm now working on the, the second draft. I should add, um, I, didn't, I didn't put this in the book because it wasn't, I, I mean, I hope, hopefully if you read the book, you understand that Mick is very helpful to people. Um, Mick helped me get my first uh, short story published professionally he recommended me to the editors right. so um i got a short a short story published in uh, one of the hot blood anthologies yeah so I mean, i'm mick just seems i mean such a lovely man that you, i mean you say that in the book and it's so true <laughs> yeah i mean he's just uh, you know, I mean, literally everybody was like, you know, oh, what can I 
tell you about him. When I got to interview Clive Barker, Clive Barker was like, I have to thank you for doing this book about me. <laughs> Which must feel good to have Clive Barker say that to you. It feels good to have Clive Barker say anything. <laughs> he was just lovely. Um, I was, I mean, you know, because I, he's one of my heroes and uh, this was a reason to speak with him and he could not have been more lovely or more happy to talk about Mick. No, I mean, and that's the thing that comes across in your book. It, it is just, everyone's so glowing about him without it seeming like they're, you know, they're, they're kissing up to him. It, 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 that doesn't even factor into it. It's just the fact that he is a nice man. Yeah, well, they're not, I mean, Clive Barker, I don't think has to kiss up to anybody. No, so. No. <laughs> Um, you know, and Robert Carlyle, who I went through his publicist, and I thought, well, you know, this may be a reach. And they literally came back in 15 minutes and said, Bobby would love to talk to you about Nick. <laughs> and that rarely happens. Yeah, that rarely. You, do, you don't get very often where you put in a request and the person doesn't even know who the hell you are, but... <laughs> It's, it's like, oh, yeah, the, you know, Mick, I'll talk about Mick. And of course, he was, you know, if you read that chapter, it was, uh, you know, there, it's a mutual admiration society there. Oh, yeah, that, that was a powerful chapter in the book. I mean, just the, the sheer amount of emotion in that I, I thought was that, that managed to come across on the page. Um, have you seen that episode? I, I haven't seen the episode, no. Um, I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix. If you, I, if you get Netflix there? Yes, um, I do. I'll have a little uh, mooch for it and see if I can find it. Okay, if not, it should be on Disney Plus because they own it. Um, Disney own everything these days? <laughs> yeah, well, they own ABC and it was an ABC show and obviously the licensing was all sure. Disney because it's, um, although I don't think they ever did that version of Rumpelstiltskin in anything else that I'm aware of. But it is, it's a very emotionally uh, powerful episode. And it is that, well, um, you know, it was just so nice to be able to talk to, you know, Robert Carlyle about that. Um, yeah. No, it, it definitely, it came across as something. And I did think I, I must try and, and find that episode because just, the power of the way everyone was talking about it was, was, was something else. Um, um, you know, and there were things I learned while writing the book that I hadn't that I hadn't known. Um, actually, a lot of things. I you mean, feel... the worst. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, there were stories that I knew, like the insane censorship issues with Fuzzbucket about the, the unscrewing sounds. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, because I, I, I was around when that happened at the time, and it was like, that was memorable <laughs> to me. But there were a lot of stories that I didn't know, uh, like... Um, exactly you know some of the stuff that john landis had done and uh this didn't directly involve mick but bill corso and cynthia garris's story about when they couldn't get the test makeup off of her yes um 
so there were and and I also uh, should mention that our editor publisher was just great with details like, oh no, that wasn't the I-5 strangler, that was the I-5 killer, and he was active from then to, I mean, he checked every, our, um, Arnold T. Blumberg, he checked every detail to make sure that, oh no, you know, it's like, oh, it's this. So uh, that was the, that was great. Well, Abby, I, I will leave it there and make sure you, you get some rest. Um, thank you very much for, for spending the time today to talk. I know it's the, the wee small hours for you, so, so thank you. Uh, well, thank you. I hope, I hope I've been a good interview subject. I'm not used to being on this side of it, so. No, you, you have been, and you know, you've, you've got great stories as well, you know, just through your career. So even be able to talk about Robin of Sherwood was, uh, was something else. Are you finished for the day now? Is that is that you? Um, I think I'm going to transcribe a little <laughs> more. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thank you, and take care. You too. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Movies and Focus podcast. You can download it wherever you get your podcasts, and I hope that you tell your friends about it. That's it for this time, and I'll see you at the movies. Music